Hello and welcome back to Out the Gate, the podcast about sailing and adventure on and around San Francisco Bay. If you've been a long time Out the Gate listener, you likely heard Amanda Swan Neal on episode 14 of the show, talking about sailing into San Francisco Bay, her time aboard Maiden, the first all-female crude whipbread boat, and her current sailing adventure, a sail training business that she runs with her husband, John Neal. Well, this week, I catch up with John, who at the age of 22, bought a 27-foot boat, an Albany Vega sloop, and set off from Seattle, headed for the South Pacific. His book chronicling that trip, called Log of the Mahina, became a bestseller, and it led people to seek him out, most of them asking one question, how can I find and prepare a boat for offshore sailing? So many people were asking him that he decided to start a business around that, teaching people with seminars and then blue water sailing excursions. Today, he's conducted nearly 200 sail training expeditions, and he's sailed over 300,000 miles all over the planet, rounding the horn six times in the process. Well, John has a lot of knowledge about boats and ocean sailing to impart, so listen carefully and enjoy. I'm John Neal, and right now I'm on San Juan Island at a place called Roche Harbor, which is a little marina and old limestone quarry just seven miles east of Victoria, Canada, so just off the southern end of Vancouver Island in the San Juan Islands. And that's where you and Amanda are based, home-based now, is that correct? Yep. Uh, Amanda sailed here with her family when she was 16 on a boat they built in New Zealand, and I came here when I was, I think, 12 or 13, hunting rabbits with my dad and my brother, and camping at the county park, and I kind of thought this was a very cool, very rural island, and then I moved my business here from Seattle in about 1980, and built a house, uh, had started an office, and I've always had an officer, a marine business here since then. You mentioned camping and hunting with your father. Let's go back to your childhood. I'm really curious. Just from that little snippet, it sounds like it was adventurous, but uh, I'm curious to hear more about it and how sailing entered the picture. Well, I was born in what is now South Sudan, and my parents were medical volunteers. My mom was a nurse. My dad drove a truck back and forth across Africa during World War II. And they met and got married and had three of their four kids there. And then independence came and everyone that worked in their hospital was shot instead of the crocodiles. And we had to leave in a hurry. And we ended up in Seattle because my mom was from eastern Washington and had gone to University of Washington for med school. And then um, so I grew up in Seattle and I bought a little eight foot plastic sailing boat when I was about. 13 or so and sailed it on a lake and really loved sailing and then I took it just came with a one page sheet of sailing instructions during high school or junior high I don't remember which I was reading Robin Lee Graham's articles in National Geographic about sailing around the world when he was 16 on a 24 foot sloop 
falling in love in Fiji and um, completing a circumnavigation. And I thought, wow, if a 16-year-old kid could do that, sounds like a great plan. And so when I was 22, I sold everything that I had, bought a 27-foot Alban Vega for 12 grand and took off just with, I only had enough money to plan for a summer away from work. And I was planning to sail to Hawaii and back. And I got to Hawaii and I met a really nice young couple from San Francisco who had just spent six months in the Marquesas. And during about half that time, they were the only boat, the only yacht in the entire island group. And they said, you cannot go back. You cannot sail back to Seattle. You have to <laughs> sail to the Marquesas. We just spent six months there. We've written the what we think is the first English Marquesan dictionary. Here you can have it. We'll hand copy it for you. We have all these people that we'd like you to relay our greetings to. So I was totally hooked. How did you meet this couple? Just in Hilo, Hawaii. So I I sailed with a friend down from San Francisco, from Seattle, San Francisco. He got off and had to go back to work. And I met a gorgeous girl at Johnson and Joseph, which was the Marine Channelry right in the waterfront of San Francisco, and I needed to buy some line and another anchor and some things. And this gorgeous girl, Diane Dring, was the was selling it to me and I said, Hey, how would you like to sail to Hawaii next week? And she said, <laughs> Sounds great. And so we did. And um, we had a fabulous time. We got to Hilo and she felt she didn't have any money either, and she felt she needed to get back to her job, and so she left. And so I was single-handing through the Hawaiian Islands when I met this couple. And I said, well, I, I don't want a single-hand. And they said, no problem. We'll find a girl for you. And they did. <laughs> and so I, 22 years old, took off from um, Honolulu and sailed to windward against the Southeast Trade, 2,300 miles to the Marquesas. It was a very rough trip beating against the trades in a boat that only weighed 5,000 pounds, pounded like Jesus. But we, we made it to the Marquesas, and there was only two or three boats that we saw during a month or so in the Marquesas. We sailed to a bunch of different islands. And then uh, she decided she wanted to go back to Hawaii, so she got on that boat going back. And I ended up single-handing through the Marquesas to the two motos, to Tahiti, and then all the way through the South Pacific to uh, Samoa. But along the way, I fell in love several times. But at Aitutaki, which is a small island in the Southern Cook Islands group, I met a gorgeous Polynesian girl and ended up, well, I got into a storm. I lay a hull without any sails up. It was the edge of a cyclone, big wave, picked the boat up, smashed it down on its beam, snapped the rudder, and I spent two and a half days beating into the tail end of the cyclone to windward without a rudder, just using tying warps, lines off one side of the transom and the other to get the boat to go to windward. Got back to the island where I had um, met her and got towed into the pass and then dove down, removed the rudder. There was no haul-up facility within 3,000 miles. We built the rudder at the airport and uh, ended up sailing on. Wow. So you repaired the Alban Vega, 
onto Samoa, and then where did the trip go from there? Well, in Samoa, I was looking for crew, and I was pretty much out of money. I'd been writing magazine articles for a free sailing magazine in Seattle. So I had $50 a month income, and I was managing to survive okay on $50 a month, rice and beans and oats and catching fish. And in Samoa, I don't know how, but I met a bunch of uh, expat American school teachers. And one of them had just finished his contract, and he said, well, I'm headed back to the Northwest, and uh, I'll crew with you. And then he said, and Mike, who I had met, uh, Mike's son, Tim, would really like to go. Tim was 12 years old. He was from Southern California. He had never sailed before. And his mom and dad said, sure, as long as Ron's going along, we know Ron. And so the three of us sailed tacking to windward from Samoa to Christmas Island. We met some really interesting people on Christmas Island. And then from there, we had quite a good passage to Honolulu. Then from Honolulu, I sailed back to Seattle. And then I was totally broke, and I turned the year and a half of magazine articles into a book. I had no money to pay the printer. The printer took a note on my boat, so he would have gotten the boat if I didn't come up with six grand in six months. <laughs> and so I went around went around to boat shows and to yacht clubs and to colleges and universities doing slideshows about this 22-year-old kid sailing through the South Pacific, falling in love and all this stuff and and making it back. And Book of the Month Club picked up the book, did a hardback, a uh, couple printings of it. Book's now in its sixth or seventh printing, sold 34,000 copies. And that was my sole means of making money for a couple years. And that's the log of the Mahina, is that correct? That's log of Mahina, Tale of the South Pacific. And it's available as an ebook on Amazon. So a lot of people at that time, there weren't very many people out cruising and there weren't very many articles or books. So for a year, I just spent pretty much all my time besides doing slideshows, answering people's letters. There was no email. And they were writing to say, how can I do it? You did it on such a shoestring and a little boat. What boat should I choose? Mm. And so I spent lots of time trying to help people. And then I met a couple in Portland, Oregon, who came to one of my boat show talks. And he said, look, this isn't very efficient. You need to make a seminar and write a course book to go with it and then do seminars. I don't know how they got that idea, but since then we've done, I think, 177 seminars for 11,000 people. Wow. Seminars all around the world. The first seminar was in 1976. We have people now whose parents came to my seminar 40 years ago, and they were kids, homeschooled, cruising kids. Now they are taking off with their kids and helping them on their way. So it's been really very gratifying. We meet people all over the world. They bring up our Offshore Cruising Companion course book, which is now in its 47th edition. Wow. And they bring up this tattered book and said, you got us here. We chose our boat based on your chapters on selecting a boat for offshore cruising. And we followed all your ideas on equipping it. And look at us. We're here. now, and We're having a blast. And thanks for getting us here. And so that's been 
a lot of years that we've been hearing those stories. Hopefully we'll keep hearing how much this current uh, situation passes. Hope we'll be, hopefully we'll be back out failing again and hearing more stories like that. Wow, that's amazing to hear that you've been advising generations of people. Yeah. Um, how I'm curious how the advice has changed. The boats have certainly changed. We know the boats have gotten bigger. What people consider the right size for cruising has changed. How has the advice changed for people? Well, a lot of the people that I talked with 43 years ago had a budget of $10,000 or maybe $20,000 or really extravagant thirty grand. A lot of the people I work with today have much more substantial budgets. Very few of them are looking for 30-foot boats. I try and talk people down. I have sometimes people saying I want to buy a 60-foot boat. And I say, right, how many people in your family? They say, no, it's just me and my wife. And it's like, really? For two people, 60-foot boat? Wow, that's going to be a lot of work. And so I always try and talk people down. I kind of feel that the ideal size for a couple is somewhere between 40 and 42 or 43 feet. Uh, just because it's uh, easier to handle that the running costs are a lot lower, sales are easier, are smaller. Um, there's a lot more moorage places around the world for a 40-foot boat than there are for a 60-foot boat. Mm, yeah. um, but sometimes I can't talk about that. And the other thing that's changed is multi-hill. There, there were a few Jim Brown, Sea Runner, plywood, home-built um, tries out there, a few warm Polynesian concept catamarans out there, very, very few. But now we're seeing as much as 30%, maybe 35% of the boats doing long-distance cruising or catamarans. And so that's been a huge change. Do you think sailing is less accessible, more accessible, or about the same as when you started helping people out? Yeah, I think it's absolutely more accessible. When I started helping people for the first five to seven years, there was no electronic navigation at all. There were no roller furling head sails. Um, there was no in, in mast uh, reefing. Uh, there's just, there was no electronic cartography. So it's, it's way, way easier. We have people who, we call them the uh, YouTube cruisers, who absolutely have had no sailing experience at all. They've watched every Delos episode that's ever happened, and actually Delos came to our seminar and used our uh, guidelines for choosing the email that they chose. <laughs> and that's great to know. These, these YouTube sailors are often, most of them make it, and the others you never hear of. It's kind of scary starting out, because they haven't a clue about navigation frequently. They haven't a clue about weather. But it's amazing how many of them muddle through and then end up becoming competent uh, cruisers. It doesn't always happen that way. and uh, It's very, very difficult now. In the last two years, the offshore insurance market has hugely contracted. Uh, some of the largest players, including Pantaneous, have completely dropped out because they've had such huge losses in the Caribbean storms. And so now, if you have your YouTube couple and you've put two or three or four hundred thousand dollars in the catamaran, all of a sudden you find you are uninsurable because they want like experience in like type and size 
to what you're asking them to insure. And so if you haven't already done an ocean passage on a similar size boat, many times insurance is impossible without your hiring a professional licensed delivery captain to go with you, at least on your first major passage. That's really so, interesting. Well, it's just a matter of odds. Yeah. And that's all insurance is. And if, if they know that the odds of you turning it on the 406 EPIRB and being asked to take it off the boat because you get seasick and scared, that happens so frequently that uh, they won't insure you for that passage. And that's directly related to that accessibility that you were talking about before because we do have this ability to just flip the switch and say, help me. Which is fantastic. And so I just got an email from a young, I assume a young couple. They were they had a very modest budget, like maybe 30 grand, and they wanted me to help them find a boat. And I said, well, have you guys ever sailed before? And they said, no, but we don't, that doesn't matter. We're just taking off anyway. And I said, no, look, before you look at boats, you need to learn if you like sailing or not. Because about a third of the people find out that it's not comfortable for them. It's too challenging. The continual motion, the sound, the noise, uh, the lack of accessibility um, is is uh, a barrier for them. And so they end up selling their boat as soon as they can. We see this continually. And so I'm always trying to encourage people to get sailing lessons, get a basic knowledge base so that you're not going to end up in the newspapers you're not going to endanger your family. Learn what you're getting into before you make that putting all your life savings into one purchase. And, uh, you know, it's like you're stacking all the cards on one horse. <laughs> yeah. Well, the horse is lame. <laughs> <laughs> You've given me the perfect segue to ask about how you decided to go from giving seminars, uh, advising people about cruising, to actually taking people cruising and giving them that experience? Well, I was cruising on a 31-foot Oliver Grassy Monsoon for 11 years, and my wife at the time said, wouldn't it be nice if we had a larger boat where you could stand up and where we'd have more space? And I said, brilliant idea. Any idea how we'd pay for it? Because at that <laughs> time, we were doing multi-image shows at universities across the country in our Volkswagen camper van and writing articles and doing seminars, just barely scraping by. And she said, hey, remember that German couple we met with the Albergrassi 382 that paid for it in seven seasons just by taking Germans across the Atlantic to the Caribbean and back every summer? They did it. We can do it because we've got all these people coming to our seminars. We were in New Caledonia when she came up with the idea. I called our little tiny bank on San Juan Island, and I said to my banker, hey, we've got this idea to do a business on a boat. And he said, how much would the boat cost? And I said, well, I think about $180,000 or $170,000. He said, well, it's out of question because we don't do boat loans that large. And he said, but if you make a business proposal, we'll look at business loan. I did. I faxed it to him. And he said, yeah, sure, we'll do that. So that day, an Australian guy was walking down the dock. He was on a boat with some Aussie mates 
and the boat was falling apart, and they were headed back. They just sailed up from uh, Brisbane to New Caledonia, and they were just turning around and heading back. It's just uh, 800 miles. He said, hey, what kind of boat is that? I've never seen one of those before. So it's a hovercraft. And he came aboard and he said, could I buy it? And we said, what? <laughs> and he said, yeah, I'd, I'd like to have a boat that I could sail just by myself or with my wife back and forth from Brisbane up here because I really like New Caledonia, what I've seen. And he said, if you'll sail it back to Brisbane and teach me during the 800 miles how to do it, um, I'll buy it. And I'll sign a paper right now to say that. Wow. And we said, yeah. And so he paid, I think, about $1,500 more than what I paid for the boat uh, 11 years earlier. Wow. And that was just enough to cover the wind vane and the storm sails and the stuff. So basically, the boat was a wash. It didn't cost me anything for 11 years. And he was super hospitable when we got to Australia. And we rented a car and went and saw the Lone Pine Koala Sanctuary and had a fabulous time. And then flew back, um, found a boat in Long Beach. It was a catch rig, which I absolutely did not want, but there were no sloops of Halberd Grassley 42s available at that time in the U.S. Bought the boat. I flew down and took the mast off in the boatyard, packed it all up, and then trucked it to Seattle, met the boat in Seattle, took it all off, and then that the boat arrived just in just before Christmas. And in April, we left on our first uh, season of expeditions, and that year was just to Hawaii, Alaska, and back. But then after that, we sailed that boat 70,000 miles, six times around Cape Horn. We crossed the Drake Passage to Antarctica and back. Well, actually... Uh, change of uh, crew along the way. My After we got the boat, my wife at the time decided that she didn't like having being students on board, and uh, so we went our separate ways. And so for a couple of years, I ran the boat by myself, which was a real challenge, trying to do everything and cook and keep people safe and healthy and happy. And then in New Zealand in 1994, I was, I've been planning for, since I bought the boat, I've been planning to sail to Cape Horn and then Antarctica. I was in the rigging shop at Gillespie Rigging in Auckland, replacing, I didn't want to take the mast off, so I was just taking one piece of wire off at a time, taking it to the rigging shop and saying, here, here's the starboard cap shot, could you make a new one? Um, <laughs> pick it up tomorrow. And then I go haul, haul myself to the top of the mast by myself, replace it, and then come back and say, here's the port side. Well, the very attractive girl who was doing the rigging, after a few days, I said, um, would you like to go out to dinner? And she kind of looked at me, what? And she was living with a guy. She said, uh, okay. And then I said, okay, do you want to go to a restaurant or do you want to have dinner on my boat? Later, she said she thought, well, if we go to the restaurant, I'm still going to have to see his boat. So we might as well just have dinner on the boat so I could make a quick exit if I did, if it's not a comfortable boat. So anyway, uh, so she came to dinner, and then she went home to um, Jeff. And then a couple days later, I said, do you want to go see a talk by David Lewis, the um, amazing Polynesian navigator who wrote We Think Navigators book? 
And she said, yeah, sure. And I said, do you want to go have a picnic on uh, the beach? And it turns out we both had the same favorite beach, which is on the Tasman coast, about 35 minutes west of Auckland. And then when we're on the beach, I said, um, do you want to come sailing with me? Do you want to fly up to Tahiti and meet me? And uh, we'll sail, yeah, see how you like it. The uh, first date, I said, have you ever sailed before? And she said, just a little. <laughs> and she didn't mention that she just finished the whip her head around the world race on Maiden as the rigger, and that she'd been building boats with her family and, and cruising offshore since she was six years old. She said, yeah, and and then uh, we uh, went our way, she went home, and then the next morning at like seven in the morning, she was on the dock with her sea bag a bottle of wine with a pink ribbon on it, and she said, I'm ready. I said, no, 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 no. What I said is, do you want to fly up to Tahiti and meet me? I said, I've got a full boat of expedition members leaving here next week. And she said, you're not leaving without me. (laughs) She she later said, I knew that you got to Tahiti, you probably need some Tahitian girl, and I'd never hear from you again. And she said, I wasn't going to let you go without me being on that boat. So well, wasn't going to miss our chance. To, yeah. So I said, well, we're going to have to sleep on the convertible settee in the main salon. We're going to have to put the table down and sleep there because all the bunks are sold. She said, it doesn't matter. I'm used to that on race boats, you know, sleep wherever you have yeah. to. <laughs> That's a great so, story. And obviously, well, that was it, Amanda. Who, that was Amanda Swan at yeah. that time, now Amanda Swan Neal. And it gets even better. We left and we ran right into what was later named the Queen's Birthday Storm, in which six boats and three lives were lost. And the boat that was next to us in the marina, the people died and the boat was lost. So we had the biggest seas that Amanda had ever seen, even counting going around the world in the Whitbread race. We turned the radio off when we heard that boats were lost. We were okay, but it just was too, we didn't want to frighten our crew off. They didn't know that the conditions we were in were uh, life-threatening. We didn't want to make it seem scarier than it was. But all of the four or five people on board had signed up for heavy weather experience because it was in the Roaring Forties. When you leave New Zealand to get to Tahiti, you still sail straight east toward Cape Horn at roughly 40 to 45 degrees south in the edge of the Roaring Forties for the first uh, 1,700 miles. And then you do a 90-degree left-hand turn and use the southeast trades to go up to the Austral Islands. And then from there, it's just two nights up to Tahiti. We were going east, and the storm was coming from Fiji straight over the whole there was uh, 60 boats out. It was a cruising rally. The storm went right over, it was a revolving tropical storm, went right over the whole fleet of 60 or so boats. Very dire conditions. There were two books and one movie written about that, and I interviewed as many of the survivors as I could and wrote an article for Latitude 38 on it. But the Old Hovergrassy 42 did absolutely fine. We just went straight downwind or on a broad reach, going away from the worst part of the storm. 
The boat was surfing, the knot meter was pegged, we had only a storm jib up, and people could only steer for 15 minutes at a time, and it would take one person sitting with their back against the aft end of the cabin, looking and calling the waves, and another person on the helm, uh, total concentration to keep the boat lined up so the wave would hit it and just the boat would accelerate. We had no problems, no broaches. We filled the cockpit several times, and it's not an aft cockpit boat. It's a center cockpit boat with a lot of buoyancy aft. But um, I had never seen any conditions like that. And I said to Amanda, should we heave two now? She said, hell no, you've got this thing fly. This is, this is great. No reason to slow down now because she was used to 20 knots uh, on a 68-foot boat in the whip <laughs> And she didn't think that was any reason to think about storm tactics. But we made it. Our crew did fine. They loved it. They ended up becoming close friends and staying in touch. For We're still in touch with several of them. And that was 1994. So it was quite a while ago. So many questions come to mind from that. I guess the first is um, just your philosophy around heavy weather sailing and storm tactics. Um, You talked a bit about heaving to. Do you ever deploy drogues? Um, What's your philosophy? My philosophy has evolved over you know, almost 400,000 miles of experience over the last 46 years on all types of boats all over the world, from the Arctic to the Antarctic, a lot of North Sea time. And I feel that the safest thing for just about any boat in any condition is to keep the boat moving. Stopping the boat with a parachute sea anchor is probably the most dangerous from the people I've interviewed who have lost their boats because of that. So parachute sea anchor, not really good program. Slowing the boat down with the drogue, uh, we have two drogues on board. We have a gale rider drogue and a shark drogue. We teach with them. We deploy them on most expedition lakes. But we find that actually the best tactic of all is for reaching, and that is turning the boat upwind so that you diminish your exposure. Basically, you have your exposure to the storm conditions instead of going with the storm. So a lot of times, storms are moving at 8 to 12 knots, maybe 15 knots. If you're going 6 to 8 knots and you're going in the same direction as the storm, you're going to be in it for a bloody long time. If you instead turn and set the boat with only a reefed, deeply reefed mainsail or a storm trysail, no head sail. If you have a boat that has a relatively moderate keel, meaning not a high aspect, deep skinny fin keel and a high aspect, deep skinny rudder, most boats, most what we would consider average cruising boats will sail themselves upwind. So you put the brake on the wheel or you put the line or the bungees on the tiller, if you have tiller steer boat, and set the boat up so it's going on a close reach. You're going into the storm, so you're reducing your time. You never have a chance of broaching and rolling because you've been gone too fast down the face of a wave, and it's actually surprisingly comfortable. So the caveat is this doesn't work if you have a modern boat, like a, a new Beneteau, uh, or um, a J-boat or an X-yacht has a really deep 
Cuts can you kill? Because for Hans, they, the boat's just spin around in circles. And so if you have a boat like that, really your best tactic, if you can't avoid storms, is what race boats do in storm conditions, is, and that is just put on your very smallest head sail, if, if any main at all, triple reefed or trisail replacing the main, and just hand steer the boat upwind. And by going upwind, you just keep the speed down, so the chance of breaking the rudder is reduced. And so, so many people that I've interviewed who have ended up losing their boats uh, or abandoning them, it's been because of rudder failure. And when you're surfing down a 20 or 25 or 30 foot wave, you're putting huge torque loads on the rudder and on all the steering gear as you try and keep the boat going straight. And if instead you're just doing three knots upwind, uh, there's no loading on anything. There's no loading on the mast, on the rigging, on the rudder. There's no loading on the people. It's just, uh, it's amazing. We found this out. If you if you look up for reaching in really, really old storm books like Ad, Adler Cole's Heavy Weather Sailing, which is an English mm-hmm. book, still in print. If you look up for reaching, they'll, they'll talk about this, but it's very rare that you ever hear it mentioned in any discussion, article, seminar on storm sailing today. It's just something that is out of people's, it's out of the genre, it's out of their minds. It's, we found it by accident. We were off the Oregon coast. We've sailed three times from uh, New Zealand to Alaska, to Panama, to the North Pole, to Spitsbergen, and Iceland. And in order to get from uh, the Pacific Northwest through the Caribbean before the start of Caribbean or Atlantic um, hurricane season, we have to leave very, very early, mid-March, to go down the coast from Pacific Northwest, from Victoria, Canada, to San Francisco. And we are always getting multiple weather routing services. We're always utilizing multiple weather routing. But sometimes um, they miss it, and the storms can happen in March. They can Wind can change really quickly. Heading down the Oregon coast, we got a forecast. The barometer dropped um, 16 millibars in 24 hours, and all of a sudden on Channel 16, Coast Guard came came on and said, extreme weather warning, please shift to weather one or weather two. And they said, uh, uh, very localized intense winds to 50 to 60 knots, used to 30 feet, will be happening in the next 12 hours um, off the entire coast of Oregon. And so we said, great, this is, you guys want to start experiences, this is going to be interesting. So we put up the storm trysail and the storm staysail, and we're doing just fine. The wind increased a bit more. We took down the storm staysail. It's just a hang-on sail. We're steering. Um, we're trying to dodge Dungeness crab boats, and so they are still pulling pots and also just dodging in place. These are 60 to 80 foot long um, crabbers, and they are as far as 30 or 40 miles offshore, and it was right in the middle of crab season, so we're dodging these guys. And we found that going upwind, and of course the storm was on our nose, southerlies, um, going upwind with just the trysail by itself was really comfortable. We were doing 
three and a half or four knots. We weren't crashing at all. Um, you, we could just put the brake on the wheel. We didn't have to hand steer at all. Had to be there because every once in a while a big wave would smack the boat and try and push the bow down. You just have to make a little correction and bring it back. Basically, it was really easy going. And then um, we were running nav lights and radar, and et cetera, weather facts. At that point, uh, we needed to charge batteries. And I said, well, let's just try something different. Instead of charging at 1,200 RPM in neutral, let's try charging at 1,200 RPM in gear. And it was amazing. It was like somebody turned on a gyro stabilizer. The sound of the motor on blotted out all the screaming of the wind and the rigging. And the helical force coming off the propeller onto the rudder was just like having a stabilizer. The boat wasn't getting knocked around as much. And people down below started popping their head up and they said, hey, did the wind drop? What's going on? We said, no, actually the wind has increased. But they said, well, it's really comfortable now. Um, Don't turn the engine off. And so that's another storm tactic. And Amanda's family actually used that uh, through a cyclone on their first trip from New Zealand to Tonga. And it worked for them. They had blown out their sails. But so that's another tactic that works really well in conjunction with the trisol or the triple reef name, 1,200 RPM. You obviously have to be very meticulous about sheet tails and halyard tails because if a line gets knocked off the mast and it'll instantly be caught in the rudder and the propeller. If you haven't been meticulous about your fuel tank cleanliness, if you haven't pumped the tank out, checked the bottom for sludge, guaranteed that brake or filters will plug up and you'll lose the engine. But if if you're careful in those two aspects, it's a brilliant tactic. Motor sailing to windward in in, uh, ultimate storm conditions. (laughs) Well, I also have to ask you about your boat. Your current boat is also a Hallberg Rossi. Am I right that you've only owned Hallberg Rossi since that monsoon, 31? Yeah, yeah, three three in a row. Wow. And uh, I guess we put 300 and about 350,000 miles, which is 10 or 11, 11 times around the world on those uh, on those three Hallberg Rossi's. Well, I'm partial to the boat because I grew up sailing on one and am a current owner of one. Um, what is it about Hallberg Rossi that you've found so such a good platform for doing what you do? Well, when I bought the 31, I had a, a total of a, I had built a, a waterfront home a, a cabin on San Juan Island and sold that. I took the money from selling the uh, Alban Vega and then did the publishing and then bought some land, built a house, sold that, and then I had about 40 grand. And I wanted to buy a boat 35 or 36 feet long, but I looked and looked and looked up and down the West Coast, and then I saw this HR31. I couldn't quite stand up in it, but it just, um, I knew the reputation of the boat and of the yard, the builder, and it fit, you know, it was great. It just wasn't quite big enough, but it it worked out fine. And then, so when I went to look for the 42, it was just kind of clear that that was, for what I wanted to do, that was really a perfect layout and design. And I knew I was going to be putting a lot of miles on whatever boat I ended up with. And I knew that this 
hold up. And then we actually ordered the 45th. We had it built while we were in Antarctica. So Amanda and I had been together at that stage for maybe seven months or so. And I we had MRSAT-C, which is a way of sending emails by satellite, the very first one way. We ordered the boat from Sweden. It was 18 months. We didn't want to arrive or be ready for 18 months because of our sailing schedule. I flew back to Sweden and went through the yard. That was the first time. And it was just really, really clear that this, these people were building boats specifically to sail anywhere in the world. High latitudes, cold climates, or warm climates. I looked everywhere. I had no... I would have bought any boat or I would have ordered any boat. Um, I could have ordered two Beneteau 46s or Genoa 46s for the same price. So financially, Amanda wanted to buy an old Whitbread boat because it would have cost a quarter as much money and we could have put twice as many people. And I said, rack them and stack them is not what I want to do. I want to teach and I want to do the best job anyone has ever done of training people offshore. And so... It's amazing, but we've had a Mahinajari tree for, uh, what was 96 when we launched her? So I think we I think this is her 21st or 22nd season. We've sailed her 238,000 miles, which is just about nine times around the world. Um, and she's brilliant. People still say, is this a new boat? Wow. Um, it's, uh, it's amazing how well she's held up to having almost a thousand people on board over 21 years and, and sailing the equivalent of nine and a half times around the world. We don't sell boats, but um, it's, it's uh, obviously a, one choice. There's lots of good boats, but sure. um, it's a choice that's worked really well for us. Worked well for you. What are your memories of sailing into San Francisco and probably the memory of the gorgeous girl joining you sailing to Hawaii outshines the rest of the, your time in San Francisco. But have you sailed well, back into San Francisco? Um, oh, many. Yeah, yeah many I times. assumed. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And uh, we've done, I've done seminars in San Francisco since 1977. And Including here at, at the, the boat show that was supposed to be happening, um, which of course yeah. is not. And yeah. I'm really disappointed. We were supposed to be doing this interview in person. At the boat show. Uh, it would have been a lot more fun that Yeah, way. well, next yeah, year. Yeah, we really missed the show. We'll, we'll connect next year. Right. What, are, what are your uh, feelings about San Francisco sailing versus other parts of the world? You've sailed so many different places. Well, it's, it's great because when someone says, if we get an application from someone applying for, we have an eight-page application form for the expedition. It's very, very detailed because... We want to get people that are have the right priorities. If they say, yeah, I, I sail in San Francisco Bay, it's like, great, okay, we don't have to worry about them. They'll know how to reef. They won't be afraid of 30 knots of wind. And, uh, it's a whole different story when we get people from Southern California and they get 25 knots of wind. It's like, oh, my God, what's going on here? <laughs> what haven't we talked about that you'd like to touch on? Right now, in the middle of this COVID-19 thing, I think the thing to keep in your mind is your dream. And so many people have a dream of, of breaking it out of their normal life and having a grand adventure. 
there's lots of different ways to have grand adventures, but um, keeping that dream uh, and just knowing that this too will pass, it may seem like uh, we're in pretty dire and dark and discouraging days right now, which we are, but uh, keeping that dream in the back of your mind that there are wonderful adventures. A sailboat is like uh, it's like a little space capsule, and you can go shooting across instead of space, shooting across the ocean, and land in this completely different world and still have your comforts of home, still have your way to cook food and a place to sleep. And from the very beginning, from reading Robin E. Graham's The Dove book, that just struck me as like, what a cool way to travel. Um, I had backpacked and hiked and camped when I was, uh, uh, before I got into sailing. And uh, this just, it, uh, it just made it all like, wow, this is the perfect way to travel. Well, what a great note to end on. Thank you for that inspiration. And thank you for the conversation. I really appreciate it. <laughs> You're welcome. If you're interested in learning more about John and Amanda's business, signing up for a trip or a seminar, or purchasing one of the books, you can visit their website at mahina.com. That's M-A-H-I-N-A.com. And that wraps up this week's show. Thanks again for listening. I'm Ben Shaw, host and producer of the show. Do send me a message letting me know how you've enjoyed the show at outthegatesailing at gmail.com. And until next time, smooth sailing.